When the Bodhisattva was undertaking his uh, spiritual practices in order to awaken, he practiced what was the practices of those days, which were very ascetic and quite torturous. And at some point he realized, after six years of those kind of practices, that he was just weak in his body and not free in his mind. And he arrived at the intuition that there had to be another way. And he remembered a time when he was a young boy. And he was watching his father, the king, ritually plow a field in the hopes for an abundant harvest. And he was just a young boy and he was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree and he was attentive, alert, and relaxed and he spontaneously entered an exalted state of mind known as jhana or deep samadhi. And when he remembered that state of samadhi that was arrived at quite, well, spontaneously, without all of that severe, ascetic struggling, he thought, well, maybe, maybe that's the way. But he remembered the pleasure that he felt with that state of mind, that deeply concentrated, collected, absorbed uh, state of mind. He remembered the pleasure that he felt and he had some hesitation. Because the teachings in those days identified pleasure as the chief impediment to fulfilling the spiritual life. And so he looked at his experience of that pleasure and he said, no, he said that pleasure that he felt was not due to sensual indulgence, which merely leads to more craving for more sensual indulgence, but rather that pleasure was the pleasure of the liberated mind, the mind that really was free in that, for that period of time, from the defilements. And so he, he uh, reappraised his questioning of that pleasant feeling and thought that maybe that was the way to liberation, was to really find that path between ascetic uh, discipline that is severe and painful on the one hand and the life of a royal prince which was sensually indulgent on the other. And so he took to discover the place and the path in the middle. And as we know it wasn't long after that that while practicing, he did awaken to the truth. Uh, 
and became the Buddha, whose teachings have been handed down for 2,500 years to us today. So, samadhi, or concentration, has a very respected and honored and valued and important place in the awakening of the Buddha and in our practice too. Because it is the third, the second training of the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path is three trainings. The training in sila or ethical conduct, uh, purifying our speech and behavior, which we undertake here, living according to the precepts. And it allows us to put aside the most egregious defilements, the, the transgressive defilements that, that impact others in a harmful way. And because we have overcome those transgressive defilements, we can live in harmony, which is not insubstantial. If you look around the world at how many people do not have the opportunity to live in harmony, because they're at war, or, you know, just personal and interpersonal dynamics just don't conduce to harmony. So we get that benefit. The second training acknowledges that even if you speak and act carefully and you're living in harmony, your mind can still drive you crazy, <laughs> as we have probably all discovered today. And so another practice, a more, a more powerful and a more subtle practice is needed to address the obsessive defilements in the mind. And what you have done today is looked at the mind and seen all of your, you know, top ten obsessive yada, 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 yadas, you know. I want this, I don't want that, I'm right, And, you know, without speaking and without acting, it still is there. So we need another practice, which is the training of the mind to temporarily, or for as long as we can, subdue those defilements. This is the practice of samadhi. The Buddha went on also to say, even if you can temporarily subdue the defilements in the mind, conditions change. They're always changing and you never know when conditions are going to come around and the mind flares up with defilements again and your suffering. So he offered a third subtler and more powerful practice, which is the development of wisdom through the practice of insight, where we not only purify our speech and behavior and not only purify our mind of the obsessing defilements, but we purify our understanding because we live with wrong understanding. And that gives the ground for potential defilements to arise. There are latent defilements in the mind just waiting for the right conditions and they'll sprout. 
if we have uprooted wrong understanding from the mind, it doesn't matter what conditions come about, we won't fall into that. Uh, those latent defilements won't have a chance to obsess the mind. But that middle practice of samadhi or the development of the obsession-free mind temporarily is powerful because it tranquilizes the mind. And more than ever, living in the 21st century, we need the tools to help us calm the mind. It's the practice that we're doing here. This practice is about establishing a balance between tranquility and alertness. It's about seeing the events of life coming at us and finding a way to respond with awareness and compassion rather than react out of deeply conditioned habits of aversion or attachment, desire, fear. It's also about finding a way in our practice to apply our effort in a balanced way. If we're kind of casual, well, it's not going to happen automatically. On the other hand, if we're a real spiritual athlete and we're just mm -mm -mm going for it, it's not going to happen either. Because the mind's too tight, the mind's too brittle, it's too, it's just striving. And so it's finding that place in the middle and the, the path of awakening that the Buddha pointed to is called the middle path. It's finding the place in the middle, the place of balance in all of our activities, in all of our uh, experience. There's an image that I, first of all, never could understand, but now feel is the perfect image to kind of show us what our practice is. You know when you watch somebody on a tightrope? They're up there in the air and there's this tightrope stretched across something, open space at least. And they're up there trying to walk from one end to the other, which is hard enough. But then they take this heavy, long pole up there with them. Why? Why? Why don't they just try to walk across it without that? They take this pole. I now understand why. And I understand because of the seven factors of enlightenment. In trying to understand how the seven factors of enlightenment work in our practice, this image came to my mind. So you're trying to walk across this very narrow tightrope. And your center of gravity is somewhere up in the middle of your body. And a little tilt and you're off. But when you carry this big pole, the center of gravity is pretty low, much lower. And just a little, if you start to tilt one way, you send the pole just a little bit the other way and it brings you into balance. If you tip too far the other way, you just move the pole just an inch in your hands and it brings you back into balance. 
This heavy pole is necessary for maintaining balance. Mindfulness is on the tightrope. The energizing qualities of mind are on the left, and the tranquilizing qualities of mind are on the right. And when we can keep them in balance, we can walk the path. If we get a little bit out of balance, too much energy, we just lean towards the tranquility. We raise the tranquilizing factors. If we get a little too chilled out, a little too tranquil, we raise the energizing factors. The more experience we have, the smaller the adjustment that's needed. So I want to speak about these seven factors of enlightenment tonight because they are the factors to be balanced in order to walk the path successfully. In doing some research for this talk, I came across, actually I'd heard this from Saito Pandita when I was in Burma, but I came across the sutra where Mahakasapa, one of the, uh, one of the Buddha's earliest and the most dedicated and the most, uh, one of the heavies in the Buddha's time, fully enlightened Arahant person, uh, one time he was sick and he was not getting well, and the Buddha came to know of his uh, condition. The Buddha went to him and said, uh, Mahakasapa, you don't look so well. He said, no, I'm not. He says, are you getting better or not? He said, not. He said, listen. And he gave him a short discourse on the seven factors of enlightenment, at the end of which Mahakasapa got up and was healed. <laughs> well. It wasn't long after that that the Buddha got sick. And he was lying there feeling pretty miserable. And I don't know if it was Mahakasapa or another one, said, hmm, Venerable Sir, how are you feeling? Not very good. Are you getting well or not? No. Gave him a short discourse on the seven factors of enlightenment, at the end of which he was healed. So it comes down to us through history that Hearing a talk on the seven factors of enlightenment can be healing. <laughs> so just in case any of you are feeling a little weak, pay attention. You never know. Okay. So the Buddha said, the mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. The mind by nature is radiant and pure. It's shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. And last night we heard that the five major defilements, the hindrances, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt, attachment, aversion, are immediately addressed, arrested, overcome, temporarily suppressed by what are called the five jhanic factors, five concentrating factors. And when they are applied, aroused, you know, you're connecting with your object, sustaining your attention on the object, giving rise to uh, joy or at least interest, um, and, and the subsequent uh, comfort of mind and body and the uh, one-pointedness of mind, then the, the hindrances are temporarily put aside. And just having a momentary relief from the hindrances 
It's a relief. But it's not enough to awaken the mind. We need to further develop qualities of the mind above and beyond just those jhanic factors. And these are the seven factors of awakening, the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment have three energizing factors, three tranquilizing factors, and mindfulness which balances them. In Vipassana practice and in Samadhi practice or concentration practice, the seven factors of awakening are cultivated in every moment of mindfulness. So we don't need to do anything other than what you've been doing to arouse the seven factors of enlightenment. But it's helpful to understand what they are so that we can incline our mind towards them and that we can recognize them in their practice, in our practice, when they are deficient and when they are in excess. Because both deficient and excess is unbalanced practice. In Vipassana practice, the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment arise because of good practice. As soon as they arise, and these are joy, tranquility, equanimity, calmness, all the, well, as Upandita calls them, all the spiritual goodies. The energizing spiritual goodies, the tranquilizing spiritual goodies, when they arise, they become an object for attachment. We get identified with them, we get attached to them, we think that this is, this is it, now I've got it, and that attachment degrades our practice and we're back struggling before too long. In fact, they are so, uh, they are so powerful when they arise and they're so seductive, they are called pseudo-nibbana. And it happens that when they arise in Vipassana practice, when they arise strongly, you will believe you've been enlightened. That's the very nature of them. You will believe that. But your teacher knows better. <laughs> and the challenge is to get you to let go. You know, And it's not always easy. So it's good that you get forewarned that this is going to happen in your, in, your, in your Vipassana practice. In tranquility practice or concentration practice like we're doing here, again, the seven factors of awakening will arise. But we know that we're looking for this kind of tranquility, this kind of balance of mind. And so we don't immediately assume that they're the end of the path, the goal. Nevertheless, it is mindfulness that will recognize when we have an, un, an imbalanced relationship to them and will recalibrate our relationship to them. So. The first of the seven factors to speak about is mindfulness. You've all been practicing mindfulness. You've all done retreats before this one. I probably don't need to say too much about it. 
But I just want to um, say a little bit. Mindfulness is not forgetting. It's not forgetting this present moment. And it means to be in touch with, to, as, uh, to, to activate the first two jhanic factors of connecting and sustaining, actually touching the present moment with the mind so that you can, can recognize it, so you can be aware of it. Easy to understand, not complex, not easy to do. It's not easy to do because we can't believe it's that easy. It's that simple. And so we embellish our efforts with all kinds of unnecessary agendas. And these agendas are we're trying to get rid of what we don't like, trying to create what we do like, trying to uh, remembering some experience we had before and want to make it happen again, taking what we've read in a book that's supposed to happen and looking for it. And all of those other ideas get in the way of just being with the way things are. They contaminate our efforts. And so we aren't really mindful at all in, at those times until and unless we see the agendas that have attached themselves. It's not about explaining why something is happening. It's not rationalizing why something has happened. It's not analyzing it to figure out how it's happening. It's not answering the question, why is it happening? It's just observing. This is the way it is for now. Whether we like it or not, whether we can explain it or not, whether it's gross or subtle, pleasant or unpleasant, the whole package, every experience in life, can be known with awareness. Upandita says, a life without mindfulness is like food without salt. The food is there, but there's not much taste. So too with the events of life. We can, we can, we can get through life without any salt. But a little salt, a little mindfulness in our life really brings out the flavor of each moment's experience. And in Vipassana practice, that's what we get in touch with, is the unique flavor of each moment's experience. The sabhava, it's called the sabhava, the, the unique taste, whether it's physical or mental, emotional, we taste it with the mind. In concentration practice, we're not looking for that individual taste. We're not looking for that uh, unique taste. We're just trying to remember the present moment. And because we have a chosen object, in this case, for most of you, it's the breath as experienced as sensations at the nostrils. It's just remembering that. In each moment, remembering to attend to that experience. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to fix it. don't have to figure it out. don't have to enhance it. Nothing, except recognize it in each moment. In some ways, mindfulness is too easy. If you make too much effort, you miss it. 
If you don't make enough effort, you also miss it. So it takes a balance, again, of being relaxed and alert, connecting and sustaining. Really, connecting and sustaining that were identified as the first two jhanic factors or concentrated factors last night, that is the work we do. Connect and sustain, connect and sustain. The rest, if we connect and sustain, if we make the effort to connect and sustain, the rest will happen automatically. Hard to trust, but it's true. So mindfulness just connects with the present moment. And when that present moment is out of balance, too energized, too tranquil, it recognizes that and recalibrates the effort that's needed, makes the adjustment to be present in the next moment. So I want to move on to the um, three energizing factors, and I'll follow that with the three tranquilizing factors. The three energizing factors of the seven factors of enlightenment are investigation of the Dharma, energy, and joy. And you can see, just investigation, that's an active, energizing uh, movement of mind. Energy is itself energizing. And joy is an energizing uh, quality of mind. So you can see that when those three are present, or any one of those are present, the, the mind is going to be, it's going to be active. It's, going, it's not going to be sluggish. It's going to be engaging and, and pretty, pretty dynamic. So let's look at this investigation of the dharmas. It is the wisdom factor, because as we investigate the Dharma, we come to understand this is the way it is. In Vipassana practice, of course, we taste the sabhava. We, we investigate this experience. We get closer to each experience. We come to know its individual taste. And in time, we come to know its um, universal characteristics also, that it's impermanent, that it's unsatisfactory, that it's impersonal. But in concentration practice, we don't want to look that close. What we really want, and the way the investigation of the Dharma works in concentration practice, is to recognize the sign of samadhi. What's called recognizing the sign of samadhi. Now each one of you today, somewhere, has had a period of time in a sitting and walking somewhere, sitting, gazing at the sky or whatever, where you felt more present, more still, more awareness, more samadhi. Somewhere today. Remember that? What was going on there then? How did it happen? What was going on in the mind? What was going on in the environment? How did you get there? How did the mind get to that place? Investigation of the Dharma is to know that. Why did this samadhi arise? How did it happen? Was it because you were paying attention? Was it because you were relaxed a little more than usual or attentive a little more than usual? What were you paying attention to? Investigating the Dhammas in this practice is recognizing those conditions, those characteristics of that moment's experience. Because as we begin to refine our understanding of what samadhi is and how it arises in the mind, we can enhance those conditions and 
arouse samadhi more often, more frequently, for longer periods of time. So that's what we're paying attention to, the arising of samadhi, the sign of samadhi. What conditions give rise to samadhi? When investigation of the dhammas is deficient and we're not, or that quality of mind is not aroused, we don't recognize samadhi. And we don't know how it arises when it does arise. And we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So if you find yourself coming in, reaching the same impasse in your practice, in your retreat, retreat after retreat, sitting after sitting, we could say that investigating the dhammas that will give you the understanding of how, it's, how that's happening or why that's happening is not active enough. It's deficient. On the other hand, if investigating the dhammas is in excess, you'll find yourself reviewing the books you've read about dhamma practice or jhana practice or thinking about nimittas and, and wondering where it is in your practice. And the mind is too active thinking about the dhamma. Investigating the dhamma, but not your experience, but investigating what you know about or have read about the dhamma. We could say that's an excess of investigating the dhamma, and it's not really effective. That excessive reflection of the dhamma leads to restlessness. And restlessness, of course, is is not going to uh, bring the mind into balance. In balanced samadhi practice or concentration practice, we want to attend to the present moment just enough to know that we're present for it. That's all. Just enough to know that we're present for it. We don't need that penetrating investigation that we develop in Vipassana practice. So if you're looking that close, you may be pushing through the, um, the experience to insight rather than resting in that place of balance where you can develop tranquility. Trying too hard. Be careful of that. The second energizing factor of the seven factors is energy. And, you know, energy is that topic, they say, that the Buddha spoke more about than any other topic in his 45 years of teaching. And we have to ask, now, why? Why did the Buddha have to speak about energy much more than mindfulness or equanimity or liberation or nibbana or samadhi or anything else? He spoke about energy and effort. Well, the way I understand it, there are so many pitfalls on the path that people in his day had fallen into every one of them. And so he had to speak about what was the right effort for them to get out of that pitfall. But they can be all summarized or all condensed to four right efforts the right effort to avoid defilements that haven't arisen yet. To avoid defilements that haven't arisen yet? 
Let me just point to what that means. You know when you go home from this retreat, the stack of mail that will be waiting for you on the desk? There's going to be a catalog in there. You don't know what's in that catalog. You haven't needed it in your life up till now. If you don't look, you won't arouse attachment. If you can just throw that in the garbage or recycle it before you look, that's avoiding defilements that have not yet arisen. You could also just come on a retreat like this and, you know, for the duration of your time here, you're avoiding a lot of distraction, potential distraction, defilements, all kinds of behavior that is less than noble. Of course, we can't live like that all the time, but for a period of time, this is the effort that's required. Now, think about that. It's not a strenuous, you know, muscular twisting of the mind and, and just uh, ascetic something or other energy. It's just avoiding. Just avoiding. How easy is that? But it takes effort. It takes effort to avoid indulging your habits. That's what it is. Avoiding indulging habits. The second right effort is to overcome those defilements that have already arisen. Well, try as best as we can today to be present, to be mindful, to be aware. There probably was a few moments when the mind was frustrated, upset, hungry, waiting for the bell, wishing the bell would ring, kind of judging somebody else in the crowd, and defilements arise. They do. What to do about it? Well, this effort is to recognize those defiled states of mind, because when defilements arise in the mind, we don't, we're not paying attention to the breath, we're not calming the mind, we're agitating the mind with yeah, 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 yeah. And so, in order to recognize them and to subdue them, it takes effort. In this practice of samadhi or developing concentration, the effort that's required is to recognize, first to recognize that the mind is not on the chosen object, and to gently redirect your attention there. That's all. To just stop indulging in it, turn back to the breath. It takes effort. It takes a w the effort is being willing to let go of your obsession. That's the effort. Being willing to let go of your obsessing. It's just a willingness. In Vipassana practice, we would say, you know, investigate this defilement. What does it feel like? How do you feel in the body? What kind of thoughts do you have? How strong is it? How long does it last? There's, there's all kinds of investigating the nature of that defilement, that state of mind. But in samadhi practice, concentration practice, we don't investigate the defilement. We just leave it. Turn our attention away from it, back to the chosen object, the breath at the nostrils. The, four, the third right effort is to arouse wholesome states of mind, wholesome mental factors that have not yet arisen. Every moment that you have the intention to be mindful, is making this effort. Now, whether you become mindful or not, that's not the point. It's being willing 
to arouse or to try to arouse, to have the intention to arouse a wholesome state of mind. To be mindful, to be aware, to be present. And it may just be a moment, and then you're off in wandering mind or la-la land. Or, but that moment is powerful because it is an intention that has been followed through. It's a karmic act. It's sure to produce a result, a pleasant result, then and in the future. But it takes a lot of faith in the Dharma to persist in arousing this awareness for what? You know, a lot of times when we arouse awareness, certainly in Vipassana practice, it's just unpleasant. It's, you know, it's a difficult, it's struggling, the, mind, the body's unpleasant, it's painful sometimes, the mind is chattering away. What is going to support our continued interest in awakening and being aware of that? Well, it's faith, faith in the Dharma, faith in the Buddha, faith in the Sangha. Some of you have been practicing the Dharma for uh, a few retreats, and some of you have been practicing for many years. Why? Why? When you answer that question, you'll understand where your faith comes from and how much faith there is. We practice because, well, it feels good sometimes. We've seen the benefit in the past. We believe what we read or what we, we uh, hear is possible. We know someone who has, whose life has changed because of practice. All of those experiences give us some level of trust, confidence, faith to keep making the effort. We do have to be patient with the mind that is untrained. And we do have to be persistent in developing additional wholesome qualities of mind. As Ramana Maharshi says, no one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. But lest you think that perseverance is grit your teeth and struggle. Feel the sensations in your buttocks as you sit here. Feel that? Feel that? That's all the effort it takes. That's all. None of you were struggling. None of you were gritting your teeth. None of you were sweating. And it was just that easy. It's turn your mind to the present moment. Recognize it. It's not difficult. But as Saito Utejaniya says, it's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It's difficult to maintain it continuously. And for this, you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. We just keep persevering. Every time we find that we're not on the object, in this case, the breath, just start again. Just start again. If you start two times in a sitting, it's great. If you start 200 times, that's better. We just turn our attention. 
I could start again. The fourth right effort is to develop wholesome qualities of mind that have already arisen. And here is where it pays to recognize wholesome states of mind. Because wholesome states of mind, calmness, energy, enjoyment or joy, confidence, tranquility, um, curiosity that investigates, any of those qualities, awareness, any of those qualities, when they arise, if they are recognized, it strengthens them. But all of the wholesome qualities are subtler than the defilements. Hmm. So the defilements get a lot of air time. They get a lot of attention. The wholesome qualities, wow, we could be just floating through on a, on a, on a cloud of wholesome qualities, won't recognize it. Not strong enough. Not gross enough. So we need to refine our perception to be able to recognize wholesome states of mind when they arise. This talk on the seven factors of awakening identifies uh, seven of them to, to pay close attention to. When effort or energy is in excess, we get caught in striving, overexerting, hypervigilance, leads to restlessness, tension, tightness. But when our effort or our energy is deficient, dull, lethargic, lazy, we indulge in gazing without seeing. You know that great spiritual teacher of the last century, late the last century, um, Carlos Castaneda? He, he learned uh, right effort from his teacher, Don Juan. And he writes, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now realized that I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. So we have investigating the Dharma, we have energy. The third energizing factor is joy, piti, that was spoken about last night. This is one of the major spiritual goodies in, in spiritual practice. In fact, it's the goal of some spiritual traditions. Ecstasy, or rapture, or the oblivion that comes when you just escape out the top, <laughs> like that. And hey, it's, we could be forgiven for thinking that that's the goal, because it is, it's enjoyable, it's pleasant, it's, uh, it's certainly unique among the pleasures that we can experience as a human being. But it starts with just being interested in our practice. It sometimes is being uh, zestful in our practice, taking delight in our practice, and it matures in rapture and ecstasy. How do you get it? It isn't in a pill. It's in connecting and sustaining. That's it. If you connect and sustain your attention with sufficient continuity, 
joy will come. It's joy not in the experience of the sensations at the nostrils or any other sensory experience. It's joy in the mind being able to do its work unhindered. When the mind is unhindered because the hindrances have been overcome by connecting and sustaining, the mind loves to do what it does, which is to know things as they are. When the mind can know things as they are, it is delighted. It's not even a personal evaluation of your own. It appears, we talk about joy. It isn't joy like, went to a good movie, it was really joyful. It's not that at all. It's not about ice cream joy. It's not about uh, going to the beach joy. It's the joy of, as I say, the mind doing its work unhindered. It appears in several different ways. Some people experience this just the mind just opening and feeling chills and thrills and goosebumps and sometimes feeling uh, energy in the body that you just never felt before. Uh, there are just many ways that, from both very subtle goose flesh, tingling, chills to uh, you know, sometimes feeling like the elevator, you know when the elevator starts down and you have that, that feeling? Is it called, uh, Upandita calls this, air pocket mid-flight. <laughs> it's also a, a, one of the manifestations of piti, or joy in the mind. Uh, when the mind is feeling really uh, pleasant, excited, and it just spreads out throughout the whole body, throughout the mind. And it gets more, um, where the mind is just overcome with pleasantness. It's not pleasantness because, I mean, these sensations at the nostrils are never going to be that pleasant. <laughs> but it's because the mind has no defilements and has had no defilements for a continuous period of time that this kind of joy arises. Now, imagine... There you are, just ecstatic bliss, just kind of hanging out in rapture, waves of pleasure just kind of floating through the body. Where's the aversion in your mind? No aversion in the mind. This joy overcomes aversion. And when it overcomes like that, we get attached. We say, what could be better than this? Really, what could be better than that? Well, that's the challenge of a Dharma teacher, to say, you know, this is good, but there's something better. If you can let go of this, you can taste something better. Not easy. But when this joy arises like this, it brings a tremendous confidence and clarity to the mind. It is this kind of experience that will cement your commitment to Dharma practice. Because you will see, this has revealed something you've never known before possible. The clarity in the mind is exquisite. It can also get attached to that. The joy in the mind is exquisite. It can get attached to that. The confidence in the mind is, I won't say unshakable, but it causes you to think, I'm going to devote my life to the Dharma. I'm going to tell my mother, my father, my friends, my partners, my people I work with, I'm even going to get my dog to come. You know, we feel so confident 
that we want to uh, share the Dhamma. It happens, you know, you'll see it when it comes. This kind of confidence arouses um, a tremendous amount of uh, reverence. Reverence for uh, those who serve the Dhamma, those who teach, reverence for fellow uh, Dhamma farers, because we understand that this is extraordinary. It really touches the heart in a place that hadn't been touched before. So we have three energizing factors, investigation of Dhamma, energy, and joy, balanced by mindfulness with the three tranquilizing factors. The three tranquilizing factors are calmness or tranquility, samadhi or concentration, and equanimity. And you can, you can see that tranquility, collectedness, and equanimity or non-reactivity, they're very calming, uh, grounding uh, energies in the mind. Quite different than energy, investigation, and joy, which are so uplifting. So you can see that in the balance of the uplifting and the tranquilizing factors, the mind comes into balance, and it's the task of mindfulness or awareness to do that, to recognize what is out of balance, let go, drop back into balance. Calmness, tranquility, is again another one of those spiritual goodies often mistaken as the goal in practice. But it is the experience that most of us initially seek in practice. We kind of, we're stressed out, our minds are racing, we're, you know, our emotions are carrying us all over the place, and we're... And when we look to meditation, many of us are looking to calm down, to just chill out a little bit. And so when mindfulness does tranquilize the mind, or we begin to arouse a tranquility of mind, we're going to think, this is it. This is the goal. This is the purpose for practicing. It is a result of practice, but we can become attached to it. It is maybe the most uh, significant uh, subjective feeling that we seek in practice. Because, you know, the agitation is really subdued, and it's a great relief to be able to, uh, to, to feel the mind at ease, at peace with itself, not racing and not reactive. Again, we could ask, how's this come about? Again, it's only through connecting and sustaining your attention on the chosen object. It's not by trying to calm down. Try to get calm is agitating. So just connect, sustain, connect, sustain. The mind will calm down. When tranquility is deficient, we feel agitated, we're over-energized, restless, we make too much effort, we, we sometimes get too joyful, and we sometimes think too much about the Dharma. When it's deficient. When tranquility is in excess, I mean, we've got too much of it, then we sit with the hundred-yard gaze, what I call the hundred-yard gaze. 
you know, just kind of like, wow, a stunned mullet. It's great, you know, nothing's bothering me. It's fine, but it's not balanced, and it's not going to lead to further development of wholesome qualities. We feel soporific, and rather than escaping out the top, as in rapture and ecstasy, we sink out through the bottom. You know, we're just going along and not recognizing tranquility is too high. And everything is so calm and so still and so quiet and so subtle. <laughs> and we just fall out the bottom because the tranquility is too great for the amount of energy in the mind. And when you recognize that, then rather than bring the tranquility down, we raise the energy up to meet it so that the mind stays in balance with that degree or that level, that amount of tranquility with a matching equal uh, amount of energy. So when balanced with energy, then there is a stillness the tranquility, the stillness of body, the stillness of mind. But it's dynamic. It's not a flat stillness. It's a dynamic stillness because there's energy there where there is both knowing, which is steady and tranquil, and object, which is tranquil and still. Fortunately for us, when tranquility arises, it is accompanied by a whole posse of other wholesome mental states. Lightness of mind, adaptability of mind, proficiency of mind, straightness of mind. Uh, there's just a whole package of um, mental states that come with tranquility that allow the mind to be very adaptable, very uh, straight, very clear, very truthful, very um, pliant, so that no matter what experience arises, the mind is not disturbed by it. <clears throat> the tranquility is pervasive, and the mind can adapt to it. Again, all of these uh, states of mind can be um, attached to. But I want to move on and uh, wrap this up a little bit. The second of the tranquilizing qualities is samadhi or concentration, which is what we are developing. Samadhi or concentration is a collectedness of mind, where the mind gets collected. As the mind gets collected, it gets more powerful. It sees things more in more detail. But it's not only collecting the mind, it's stabilizing the mind. The stability of the mind in concentration practice is stabilizing the object, sensations at the nostrils, but it's also stabilizing the awareness of the object. Concentration is uh, one of the most uh, important of the qualities or factors to arouse, or that is aroused in practice, because it allows us to see through the appearance of things to the inner essence of things. And in the collectedness of the mind, the mind begins to see things 
as a whole. And one way I noticed this at the IMS in the walking room, they have a floor like this, a, a parquet floor, not a parquet floor, but a, a hardwood floor that has lines. Now these pieces of wood were put down randomly. But when the mind is really concentrated, if you're walking on this floor, your mind will automatically make a pattern out of totally random floorboards. That's what the mind, the concentrated, collected, unified mind does, is it brings everything into a single unity. So, you have a problem in your life? Hasn't been solved yet? If you get concentrated, the solution will appear. Why? Because the mind is able to hold all, to see, to collect all the opposites, all the different uh, possibilities, and resolve them in a single unity, which is what the collective mind does. I'll give you an example of this. You've, many of you have probably heard of the Indian woman uh, Deepama, who was one of our teachers, passed away a decade or so ago, who had extraordinary uh, concentration capacity. Well, one of our uh, collaborators, uh, Jack Engler, did a number of tests on people like her and Manindra and several other uh, extraordinary yogis in Asia. And he did a number of uh, psychological, Western psychological tests, which included a Rorschach. Now, you know, Rorschach is the inkblot test. You know, you've got these 10 inkblots. They start out really simple, you know, a little folded paper with a black blotch there. It looks like a butterfly or something. And they get progressively more complex colors, and they get complex. So they gave Deepama this Rorschach test. When they analyzed it, they realized they had never seen a Rorschach answer like that. Never. They looked through the literature. They did not find any other instance of all the thousands, millions probably, of people that have been given a Rorschach test that answered it like she did. And the uniqueness of her answer was that she told a story that included all the images of all ten cards woven into a teaching of the Dharma. <laughs> Everything she saw was the Dharma. Images that she saw on the first card, she saw again in the seventh and the eighth or tenth card, and it was just a teaching for the person offering the test. There was nothing separate. Everything was woven into a single unity because of the power of her concentrated mind. That's what concentration does. The third of the tranquilizing factors is equanimity. Equanimity is non-reactivity. It's arresting the mind before it falls into reactivity. Now, it means when something unpleasant arises, the mind does not react with aversion. When something pleasant arises, the mind does not react with attachment. When something neither pleasant nor unpleasant arises, the mind does not react with confusion or delusion. Our cultural conditioning encourages reactivity, expects 
you to have an opinion about everything, which is not equanimity. And so it's difficult to even recognize a balanced mind and to value it in our cultural setting. But this is what we're doing in practice, is cultivating the mind that recognizes reactivity and the suffering that comes with it, and developing the balance of mind not to react, but not to, do, not to disengage from experience either. Because life is, there are pleasant and unpleasant experiences. We don't want to be cut off from or disengaged or in denial of them. But on the other hand, if we react habitually, we'll get caught in struggling or suffering. And so the challenge is for each one of us to stay open to all that life offers, feel it, pleasantness and unpleasantness, and, and neither, and not get caught in a reaction, but find a way of responding out of understanding and compassion. Well, this is, well, as, you, as you've seen today, it's easy to react or easy to get caught in reactivity. But by paying attention and by developing the con con continuity of awareness of the chosen object, we will learn to recognize the balanced mind, the non-reactive mind. Seven factors of enlightenment, seven factors of awakening, they are the essence of the balanced mind. They are the qualities that open the door to the happiness of stillness or tranquility and the possibility of peace through awakening. Our practice either here in developing concentration or in the development of insight, both of them equally develop all of these seven factors. Our practice is, in essence, the development and the refinement of the balance between these seven factors. So let's sit for a moment. Mind is like space, Ajahn Sumedho says. There's room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. <clears throat> and there's time for uh, walking practice now, and then we'll meet again for the last sitting of the evening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.